and that we can be here even this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 4. We're continuing our series of messages um, entitled, A Faith That Works, A Faith That Works. That's our series from the book of James. And today we are in James chapter 4, James chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 10. You'll find here, James has some pretty rough words for us. I'm like, oh no, God, do I really have to like preach this passage today? But, um, but hopefully you're going to bear with me, you're going to go through it with me, and we're going to allow God to speak to our hearts as we continue this morning. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And so James writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. For that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor. You might say shows grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it to speak to us today that we might truly be the kind of people you've called us to be. And we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, our message is entitled, A Faith That Keeps God First. A Faith That Keeps God First. And as we've been going through the book of James, just, you know, as I've been saying each week, we've been asking and answering the question, what does real faith look like? Is what does it mean to have real faith, a faith that saves, a, a faith that works? And James is calling us throughout his, his letter, he's calling us to back up our words of faith with a lifestyle that reflects our faith and the work of Christ within us. And as we've said, James has been making the point that only a faith that works is a faith that works. Right? I think we have that to bring up here on the screen here so you can see it once again. That only a faith that works is a faith that works. And last week we highlighted the fact that much of what James was, was writing was in response to the fact that, that, that these churches, these churches to, to which he was writing, they were already filled with all kinds of discord. You know, we always think about like that first century church, that New Testament church. They were the perfect church. Well, hate to tell you that wasn't the case. And the church was already being divided. We saw how they were being divided along social class lines. They were quick. The believers were quick to use their tongues against each other. They were being guided, we saw last week, by the wisdom of this world rather than by the wisdom of God, which was then leading them into all kinds of conflict and disorder. 
And we ended last week by noting the contrast between James 3.16 and verse 18. For in verse 16, if you can look in your Bibles for a moment, in verse 16 we read of of envy and selfish ambition leading to, to disorder and every evil or worthless practice. But in verse 18, we read of peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Two very different pictures, huh? Now, as we begin James 4, we find that James dives in even a little bit deeper to what was happening within the churches. And he even gets a little bit rough in his rebuke. For it seems like the people in these churches were living out more of verse 16 from chapter 3 than they were living out verse 18 of chapter 3. And so, I mean, James uh, James gets really tough with these people. I said to the worship team beforehand, I said, you know what, this morning I have to call the congregation adulteresses. I mean, that's James' words, not from me, okay? And we might ask today, well, why has the church throughout all of its history experienced so much discord and so many divisions? And we all know that to be true, huh? Why have so many things taken place in churches that have, in the end, in the end hurt so many people? How can it be that people who call themselves believers in Jesus Christ can end up in so much conflict? I mean, I've heard of church boards that just that end up fighting and it escalates to, to actual fistfights. Can you imagine that? Thank God that doesn't happen here at First Assembly. Right? I mean, I'd be laid out real quick by some of these guys, you know? 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza, he wrote this. Listen to his words. I mean, this is a Jewish philosopher back in the 1600s. He says, I've often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Wow, ouch, that hurts. Huh? It hurts. You see, the truth is, it's very confusing to the world around us, to people who don't know Christ, who don't claim to be Christians, to see those who profess Christ at each other's throats. And yet too often that's what they see. And it's very disheartening to new believers and believers in general to come into a place that's supposed to be a haven from this world and a haven from the discord of this world only to find the same kind of things happening in in that place that happened in the world. I mean, I know people who were once leaders in churches who no longer even attend church because they had gotten so caught up in church conflict. Can you imagine that? But James now gets to the heart of the matter as to why this happens, how this happens among people who call themselves people of faith. And what he writes applies not only to what happens in churches, but we can apply it to our homes, to our families, to our workplaces, whenever we see, as James speaks about, fights and quarrels among people. James gets to the root of it all. I know, church, this is not a fun sermon for us today, right? And the reason is this, the reason that James points out, if I can kind of boil it down, is this. 
that the believers have failed to keep God first in their lives. See, James hits the nail on, on the head for, he basically says that when we find selfish ambition and infighting and all kinds of discord, it's a sign that those people have put God on the shelf. He's no longer their priority. He no longer has first place within their lives. That is, something or someone else has taken his place. Notice in verse 1, he speaks about fights and quarrels. And, you know, he's actually using two words that were military or war terms. He's talking about these battles that were taking place among God's people. There was this infighting. There was arguing and so forth. And the words he uses are very strong because this wasn't about petty disagreements or little differences of opinion. This was like, James is saying, this is like all-out war. And you see, whenever you see that happening, when you see a group of Christians who've been fighting and quarreling, and again, not only in the church, but in, even in other areas of life, you can know that God is no longer first in their lives. Something else has taken his place. And he points out, first of all, in verse, verses 1 through 3, that self was first. It wasn't God first, but self had become first. Self had become the priority within their lives. For James points out that those to whom he was writing had allowed themselves and their personal desires to become the priority of their lives. They were filled with, as he wrote in chapter 3, bitter envy and selfish ambition as they had become more and more focused on themselves and what they wanted. You see, self was first, and James says they had become hedonistic believers. Because the word he uses there when he says, says, don't they come from the desires within you? That word desires in the Greek is the word hedonon, is the word from which we get our word hedonism. Hedonism, you know what that is? That's a life that's lived strictly for the sake of one's own pleasure. Seeking self-pleasure above all other things. Pleasure at whatever the cost necessary. Even using other people for one's own pleasure. In other words, it's whatever makes me feel good. And it's not just about sexual immorality. But it can be anything. The self becomes first. My own pleasure takes top priority in my lives and in my life. And James was accusing these so-called people of faith of having given themselves over to hedonism. They had become hedonistic believers, people who had made their own desires and their own pleasures the priority of their lives. Oh, they may have come to church and, and sung, I have decided to follow Jesus and I surrender all. And they may have said that God was the priority of their lives, but the way they live showed otherwise. For he says, listen, look at the results. You kill. He's not necessarily talking about literal murder. But James knew that Jesus had said that even harboring anger and ill will in one's heart towards another is equivalent to murder. First John 3.15, John wrote, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. See, James accuses those to whom he was writing of killing each other with their words, with their attitudes, with their selfish actions, with, with, their, with their selfish motives and so forth. He says, you kill, and then he says, and you covet. 
That is, you're jealous of what others have to the point that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. In fact, in the, in, in the original language, in the Greek, he, it's, it's actually written, you kill and covet. You kill and covet. And where do we find, find killing and coveting prohibited? Right, where do we find that, George? In the Ten Commandments. James is referring back to the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not covet. Oh, you're so, such religious people, but look at your life. You kill and you covet, but he goes on to say, but you still don't have what you want. So you keep on quarreling and fighting. And it even all affects their prayer life. He says, you do not ask God. There was, there was no turning to God with, 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 with their needs. And maybe, maybe in, in a sense, they knew that, that what they wanted were selfish desires. And there was obvious, obviously something wrong in their relationship with God so that they wouldn't even turn to him in prayer with, with the stuff that they, 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 they wanted, with their desires. But then he goes on, and when you do pray... You ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. That is, when you pray, you're praying hedonistic prayers. Right? You become like pagans. What do pagans do? They go to their God and basically, you know, I'm going to do this and do that. I'm going to, you know, offer the sacrifices and burn the incense and do all these things and chant and so forth. Why? So I can get from the God what I want. That's the way pagans function. He says, listen, your prayers are all about yourself, right? See, they weren't praying, oh, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Or not my will, but your will. Rather, their prayers were self-centered. God, I want. God, give me. God, bless me. It's all about me. I'm kind of concerned that sometimes, like some of the theology that's floated around, especially, I hate to say, in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, has, has really focused on us, what we want. Give me, give me, give me. Even some of the songs we sing, it's all focused on us. This is what God's going to do for me. And listen, listen, there, there's, there's some great things that God does for us. We sang about it this morning. He turns our morning to dancing. Amen? He gives us joy where there's gloom and, 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 and so forth. But listen... Our prayers ought not be focused upon us, but they ought to be focused on, on God and his will for our lives, not our own pleasure. Listen, we have to ask ourselves, what are our motives when we pray and ask of God? Are we seeking to build God's kingdom? Are we, are we looking to see the needs of others met? Are we praying for God's will to be done or our own? Are we praying to be a blessing or are we just praying to be blessed? And if God does answer our prayers, for what purposes will we use what God has given to us? And could it be that at times our prayers have become hedonistic, all about ourselves, that we've made God into like a little genie in the bottle, and he's just, he's just supposed to fulfill every wish and whim that we have? But James says, listen, God doesn't answer those kind of prayers. Hmm. You see, the point of all this is that there was all this disorder, fighting and quarreling among the people because they had made themselves and their own pleasures the priority of their lives. And rather than keeping God first and thus serving each other with hearts of gratitude towards God and love, they had allowed their own selfish desires to take his place. No wonder they were at each other's throats. But not only that, he goes on in verses 4, four through 6, he says, not only have you made yourself first, but you have made the world first. The world had become first. 
for the things of this world, what this world could offer. All these things had captured their attention and had taken the priority in their hearts and minds. And rather than chasing after the things of God, rather than chasing after the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God, they were chasing after this world. And so James says here, he says in verse 4, you adulterous people, or literally, he says, you adulteresses. Now, I didn't say that to you. James said, okay? You adulteresses. And he's using an image that comes right out of the Old Testament, the picture that's used of Israel in her unfaithfulness to God as the unfaithful wife. We see God had made a covenant with his people. He had become married to, to them and them to him. He was the husband. They were his bride, a bride called to faithfulness and purity. But time and again, Israel had given herself over to other lovers, to the gods of this world. Time and again, she had committed spiritual adultery, prostituting herself with the gods of this world. Why? Because they thought the gods of this world could give them what they really wanted. More crops. Rain, you know, success in their businesses. James now accuses the people in the church of doing the very same thing. They'd become unfaithful to God. They had committed spiritual adultery against Christ, the one to whom they were supposedly married. And so James, he puts out a call. In essence, he says, listen, you need to make a choice. You're either a friend of God and an enemy of the world, or you're a, or, or you're a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Right, but you cannot be friends with both. You know, it's the same thing Jesus said, is it not? When Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other, for you cannot serve God and money or material things, mammon. Mammon was actually a god, the god of greed and materialism. John wrote in his epistle, he wrote this. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Oh, I think of Joshua this morning. And they came to a, to a crux in, 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 in their history and as they're about to cross over and move forward in what God had for them as a people. And Joshua says in Joshua 24, he says to the people, now fear the Lord and, sir, and serve him with all faithfulness. He says, throw away the gods of your ancestors, worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord, serve Yahweh, serve Jehovah. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. It was a call for the people to make a decision go ahead, go and serve the gods of Egypt if you want, go and serve the gods of the Amorites if you want. But you can't serve those gods and serve the Lord at the same time. You need to make a choice. And either you give yourself over to God and pursue him and his kingdom, or you give yourself over to this world, the gods of this world, the things that this world has to offer. But listen, church, 
listen, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, to say that you belong to Christ and yet love and pursue the things of this world is to be an unfaithful wife. It is to be like an unfaithful wife. And verse number five there is, 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 is very interesting. It's actually very difficult to translate. That's why different translations will have it translated different ways. But the, but the point, the meaning is the same. Here is this unfaithful wife, God's people who have become unfaithful to him. But you know what James says? But I want to tell you, God is jealous for his people. God is jealous for his, that God is like a husband who rather than just walks away from his unfaithful wife out of anger and, and bitterness and says, forget you, I'm out of here, you know, and so forth. You know, rather, he's a God who, who, who jealously pursues her to get her back. He refuses to give up on her. Yes, he's angry. He's angry with her unfaithfulness, but he's also terribly in love with her and will do all that he can to woo her back if only she will turn back. That's why he says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God this morning? We sang about it earlier. Oh, this is amazing grace. That even for those who've been unfaithful in their devotion to God, maybe there's someone here today, you've been unfaithful in your devotion to God, I want you to know there is grace available. If only we will humble ourselves and turn back to him. Listen, when we as, as God's people make this world and the things of this world the priority of our lives, it will show, it will become obvious in, in how we interact with each other, the way we manage our lives. We become like, like an unfaithful wife, but God extends himself to us, calling, calling us back to himself, offering, our, offering himself to us if we will but humble ourselves before him. And that takes us to, to this last section, verses 7 through 10, because James puts out a call. It's a call to put God first, to put God back in his rightful place. It's James' call to God's people to turn around, to change course, to drop the other lovers, and to allow God back into his proper place within our lives. Notice verse 7, he says, submit yourselves then to God. Or that word can be translated as surrender yourself to God. To put yourself under his authority. That's where it all begins, does it not? We submit ourselves to him, allowing him and him alone to be God over our lives. And yes, we do sing, I surrender all. In other words, one can't claim to have faith in God, be one of his people, and yet live their lives for themselves, for material gain, for pleasure, for the things of this world. God had said to his people, you shall have no other gods before me. And so what do we do? We get rid of those gods. We submit ourselves to God. And then there's just like this series of commandments that, that James gives, a series of commands that we must do as we, if we're to turn back to God and experience his grace. We can't just say, oops, and then we kind of go on our way, this, just living the same way. He says, resist the devil. Stand strong against him, the one who is the tempter, who will seek to draw you back into the ways of this world. You re resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But the Bible tells us greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Amen? Amen. Right? We don't need to go through big incantations. We just need to stand strong in the word of God. 
Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near. Draw near to God. In other words, don't run from him, but turn to him. And guess what? He will draw near to you. Oh, isn't that what we want? We want him to draw near to us. Don't we want the presence of God in our lives? So he's saying, listen, turn around. Don't run away from God. Run to, to him. And he'll draw near to you. And he goes on to say, and wash your hands, purify your hearts. It's a call to turn away from sin, to expel anything from our lives that would lead us back in sin. You remember Jesus said, cut out the eye, chop off the hand, whatever it takes. The psalmist wrote, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Wash your hands, purify your hearts. And then James says, just kind of putting it together, grieve, mourn, well. He speaks of mourning and gloom. Listen, we sang about it earlier that, that when, when Jesus comes into our lives, when God steps into our lives, yes, he turns our mourning into dancing and, and, he, and he gives us joy for our gloom and so forth. But there is a time in our lives when we've been living in the world and we need to turn back to God where there, there's a place for us to grieve, to mourn, to wail. It's called godly sorrow. Godly sorrow for our sin. You see, there's a place for grieving and sorrow as we come face to face with our sin and realize how desperately we need the grace and forgiveness of God. You see, it's like the sorrow of that unfaithful wife who suddenly realizes all she was about to lose and now pleads with her husband to, to take her back. She doesn't come back in the house and say, oh, well, here I am. You've got to take me back. But she comes with a repentant heart tears in her eyes. Or maybe like the prodigal son who when he came to his senses, he returns home to his father and he throws himself at his father's feet and he says, Father, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of anything. Will you please rec just receive me as a servant? And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and, leads and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I don't think we hear those words much today, do we? But James is calling the people to repentance. He calls them to repent of all the things that have created the discord and the fights and the quarrels among them, to repent of their self-centeredness, their selfish ambition, their hatred, their, their covetousness. He calls them to turn away from their other loves, the love of self and the love of this world, and to return to their first love and to allow God to have first place once again in their lives. And so he, 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 he ends verse 10. He says, so humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will smash you on the head and beat you down even further. Is that what he says? He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he'll just give you a good swift kick. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I believe there's someone here today, maybe someone online, God wants to lift you up. God wants to lift you up. You're wondering why your life is such a mess, why things are so out, 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 out of control, why you find so much discord in your life. Could it be that you've allowed 
yourself, your own pleasures, the things of this world, whatever it might be, to take God's place. But today is your day to humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, I need you. God, will you forgive me? God, will you help me? Will you pour grace into my life? Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will come along, and he will lift you up. He will lift you up, and that's when the morning turns to dancing. The gloom turns to joy, not because the world has, has, has given us something good, but because God, through his Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, comes into our lives and begins to lift us up. Let me ask you this morning, who or what is first in your life? Who or what is first in you? Listen, we can claim to be people of faith. We can say we've given our lives to God through Jesus, that we've been born again. We can claim to have God in our lives and a relationship with him. But listen, James shows us all through his letter that words are not enough. Just praying a prayer at one time, even being dunked in some water or singing some songs, it's not enough. But people of real faith, people of real faith, they live out their faith. And so guess what? They're not people who are, whose lives are filled with fights and quarrels. And if, if and when you and I find ourselves just filled with fights and quarrels, if you find a group of people that is just filled with fights and quarrels, then you can be sure that either self or this world or both have taken priorities in, in, in the hearts of such people. For you see, where God is first, where Jesus is number one, such is never the case. When God is first, there you will find the love of God at work. You will find the peace of Christ being sown like seeds. You will find the joy of the Holy Spirit. And as James has written, a great harvest of righteousness. So I ask you again, church, who or what is first in your life? Who or what is first in your life? Jesus said, listen, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else you have need of, well, it'll be taken care of. Like God will take care of it for you. You don't have to live your life scratching and trying to climb and tearing others down. You just put your life into the hands of God. You put your faith in Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you. Trust the word of God. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Ask the team to come. This morning as we pray, each one of us needs to ask ourselves, is there anything in our lives, is there anyone in our lives that we've allowed to take God's place. Listen, it's usually a slow process. It doesn't usually happen overnight, and maybe you don't find yourself. You're not in all-out war, but you know that something has creeped into your life that has displaced God as the God, as the real God of your life. And today, today, the Word of God would call us to turn away to turn towards God. Resist the devil who wants to 
pull you away from God. Draw near to Him, to God, and He will draw near to you. Humble yourself before Him. Confess your sin before Him. And He'll be the one who will lift you up. If that's you this morning, just begin to pray. Say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I repent of my sin. I repent of how far I've wandered away. Lord, I don't want to be like that unfaithful wife. But I want you to look at my life and know that I am faithful to you in every way. God, for some here today, someone here today, maybe someone online who finds themselves far from you, maybe for the first time they sense their great need for you, as they humble themselves before you, as they repent of sin, as they confess their need for Christ in their life, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you would come in, you would renew, you would help, you would heal, you would lift them up today, draw them to yourself today, that all things would pass away, all things would become new. We love you this morning. We love you this morning, and we just declare that more than anything else in this...